Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, The Invisible War. And we're going to be turning our Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 18, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Discernment of Spirits. There are, I think, two perspectives on spiritual warfare that I think they're extremes. One extreme is when we imagine demons to be everywhere, and the other is to see demons nowhere, to discount the real presence of the demonic in our world and their influence on the lives of people. See, on the one side are those I like to call spiritual McCarthyites. Now, if you don't know who Senator Joseph McCarthy was, let me explain. In the 1940s to 1950s, Joseph McCarthy led a campaign to identify Soviet spies and communist sympathizers in the United States. He claimed that communists had infiltrated the U.S. government, universities, the film industry, and a number of other important institutions in the country. So Senator McCarthy began to make accusations against numerous people without any substantive evidence. Many lives were ruined because of his reckless approach of making public accusation and thus slandering completely innocent people. In short, Senator McCarthy saw communists under every rock. Everything in his world was infiltrated by communists. Anyone expressing criticism of U.S. policy was a communist. I know some Christians that think about demons in exactly that way. I've already mentioned those who, when they see a Christian struggling with sins of the flesh, they'll immediately assume that that person must be demonized. I've seen Christians addressing the spirit of fear and then the spirit of anger, and you know what I mean. Every human weakness, every sin of the flesh is seen as a result of a demon who has gained ground in that person's life. Christians have been infiltrated. You know, what a tragedy to live under such darkness. There's a demon under every rock and cranny. Demons have infiltrated all of our Christian institutions, and demons are directing every effort that we're making. But some of us, in order to back away from the ditch on one side of the road, have fallen into the ditch on the other side of the road. You know, I once sat under a professor who told me that with all the advances in modern psychiatry and our understanding of mental illness, that finally... We no longer need to believe in either demon possession or the oppression or the influence of demons in human lives. And what's the result of that kind of thinking? Well, it's ignorance. Many a pastor or Christian leader has no ability to see the harm that demons do in the lives of people. They simply discount the demonic, allowing people to continue to struggle under demonic attacks, all the same time remaining ignorant of what's going on. So where do we begin? Well, let's start with the most controversial example that we can find in the scriptures. And here I'm reading Matthew 17, verses 14 to 18. It says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Now you're going to notice that I said that this was a controversial account, at least to those who are on the more liberal side of things. I mean, there are those who argue that Matthew in telling this story 
has misdiagnosed the problem. This at least, so it seems, is a clear case of epilepsy. And by calling it either demon possession or demon affliction, well, it's condemning people who suffer with everything from epilepsy to Tourette's syndrome and even things like narcolepsy and other such conditions. And this is what my seminary professor was arguing. This incident in Matthew demonizes people who are struggling. We, my seminary professor, said we need to call it what it is. Matthew was written at a time when the human race had prejudices about conditions that cause bizarre behavior. But in today's world, we're finally in the place where we can do away with the superstitions of the past. Now, please notice that my professor was actually arguing that Jesus himself was affected by the superstitions of his day. Now, before we look at the details of Matthew 17, let's step back and notice that the charge itself is simply not true. The biblical writers seem quite aware of the differences between a disease and the presence of demons. So you might contrast, for instance, Matthew 17 with Matthew 4.24. There we read, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. See, what seems so fascinating about Matthew 4.24 is that Matthew makes a distinction between those oppressed by demons and those who have seizures. He doesn't conflate those two things, but calls them what they are, separate matters. You know, some who came to Jesus, says Matthew, were oppressed by demons and others were subject to seizures. Those are two different things. Matthew understands that. And notice how this plays itself out in the ministry of Jesus. We notice, for instance, Luke 13, 10 to 11. Now he is teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now today, we might simply say that she was either arthritic or perhaps she was just old. You know, the soft tissue and the, and the bone had broken down with age and deterioration. So whatever the exact nature of her infirmity, we would simply accept this. This is a medical issue, but Luke says it's a disabling spirit. And interestingly enough, in this case, Jesus doesn't cast out a demon. However, Luke says the reason for the illness is that in this case, the condition was caused by a demon. And yet, all Jesus says is, be freed from your infirmity, and she immediately straightens up and gives glory to God. There's, you know, there's no writhing on the ground. There are no bizarre manifestations. So I'm assuming, therefore, that the demon that caused this has done his work, but he's no longer present, and yet the illness persists. Now, of course, the day the woman was healed was a Sabbath, and the synagogue ruler's angry. And so we need to listen to Jesus' response, and that's given in Luke 13, verse 16. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus is emphatic. This woman was bound by Satan. Now, of course, it is possible to argue that Jesus meant no more by this than saying that it's through the deception of Satan that Adam and Eve fell, and that resulted in death and sickness on the human race. Well, Perhaps, but we do remember that Luke explains that the disease was directly caused by a spirit. But that's not always what the gospel writers say about every illness. I mean, you go back to Luke 4, where we encounter Peter's mother-in-law. 
She's sick with a fever. And Luke 4.39 says, And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And that's to say, Jesus, in this case, deals directly with the illness, making no mention that a demon was involved at all. And so, at least from my perspective, I would say that in each case, there is some form of discernment as to whether a demon is involved or not. And it's completely clear that the Bible never simply applies a pre-scientific prejudice on all of these cases. You know, sometimes, without any reference to any spiritual force, the Bible simply says somebody's sick. Indeed, by far, the majority of sicknesses that Jesus healed in the gospel accounts make no mention of demons. There seems to be a clear distinction between demon possession, even demon activity, and immediate demon causation of illnesses. It's important to remember that. Well then, with that as a background, let's get back to Matthew 17 and the case of this boy with his seizures and the activity of demons. You know, although Matthew doesn't mention it, both Mark and Luke mentioned that the father had assumed that his son did have a spirit. Now, we aren't told, but that might have been because Israel, at the time of Jesus, was a land that was filled with demons. And so, it may have been natural for the father to assume that his son was just so afflicted. But in Mark's gospel, in order to describe this, Mark explains that the boy foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Well, right, we say. That means he has epileptic seizures, doesn't mean he has demons. With the right medication, well, that can be mitigated, and with the healing power of Jesus, he can be healed. But demons, I don't think so. But listen, in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, it is clear that all three accounts assume that this condition was caused by a demon. And that would lead us to assume that in some cases, the, the actual trigger of the incident was demon possession, even so, the father doesn't articulate it, but he is clear that the boy has two problems. He is demon-possessed at that very moment, and he also has an actual physiological condition. Do you have young adults in your life, or perhaps you are a young adult, and have questions on challenging topics about life and faith? then be sure to check out In Doubt, the young adult ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Each week, In Doubt engages in an interview with a guest who is well-equipped to speak on a given topic faced by many young adults today. Topics such as medical assistance and dying, purity, social media, and parenting for young moms and dads, relevant subjects that provide biblical insight. Guests like Andy Steiger, Kyle Eidelman, Sarah Zilstra, and Matt Smethurst have all appeared on the podcast to share their expert advice with the young adult audience. So be sure to check it out or pass along the information to the young adults in your life. Just visit indoubt.ca, download the Indoubt podcast wherever you typically listen, or call 1-800-663-2425 for more information. Let's think about something we all understand, and that's stress. You know, stress can produce anything from heart disease to asthma, obesity, diabetes, headaches, even Alzheimer's. 
Now, when someone has heart disease, we know that simply taking away stress won't then cure the heart disease. The disease exists in and of its own, but the trigger came from another source, and that's a good analogy. Demons, according to the Bible, can trigger disease. Let's acknowledge that physical illnesses all have natural explanations, but a demon can be the primary cause. You might listen to Mark 9:25. It says, And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. Of course, the Bible doesn't attribute all illnesses to demonic activity. The Bible is clear that we experience illness and, and even natural disasters, and they originate from a wide variety of sources. But the Bible does acknowledge that demon activity can lead to disease and debilitating conditions. Now, having said that, it's now time to speak about the relationship between mental illness and demons. As in the case of epilepsy, it's important to make a strong distinction between mental illness and demon possession. I, like a great many of other Christians, have wondered about this. I mean, take the case of schizophrenia. You know, a schizophrenic patient will often exhibit delusions, hallucinations, and what has been called mental fragmentation. And I've sometimes heard Christians mistakenly assume this has got to be demon possession. Now, it is important for Christians to understand that schizophrenia is a disease. And for our purposes, let's ask, how can we know if there's a demonic involvement in these matters? Well, let's begin with a most basic statement. Demons hate Jesus. I hope you're not surprised by that. I've had dealings with a number of schizophrenics who are confused and who regularly ask for prayer. Even while they struggle with the effects of the disease, they don't hate Jesus. And furthermore, if you pay attention to the accounts of demon possession in the Bible, you're going to notice that demon-possessed people often speak quite rationally. You know, in the case of the slave girl who's mentioned in Acts 16, well, verse 16 says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Well, that doesn't sound schizophrenic. See, this girl is able to speak quite rationally. Indeed, her abilities are renowned. And as we read through Acts 16, we find out that Luke says that after the demon has been driven out of this girl, she immediately is unable to tell fortunes. So I think, therefore, that this girl's abilities were probably quite remarkable. I assume that what she's doing is so much more than, you know, the imposters of our day who write horoscopes or, or tell that, you know, this year that all your dreams and plans are going to come true. I assume that this girl in Act 16 was remarkably specific in regard to telling fortunes, and I assume she's also quite rational. She interacts well with people, and unlike the man with the legion of demons who is living among the tombs, this girl is not known for self-mutilation or for terrifying people. And yet, both the man with the legion, that is, the man who broke iron chains, and this slave girl are demon-possessed. So what do they have in common? Well, the answer, I think, is in their response to Jesus. At the mention of Jesus, the reaction is overwhelmingly both negative and aggressive. And we assume that the name Jesus is like a red flag before the bull. It elicits a hate-filled and a vitriolic response. But, and this is also key, involvement with the demonic 
often can cause mental illness. And when that's the case, as is the case in any other illness, the confluence of both demonic and physical factors, well, wise Christians are going to want to exercise discernment. So I want to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of spiritual McCarthyism. And so let's make clear that there are those who want to demonize everyone who disagrees with them. Let's say on their interpretation of Scripture. I know people, if your view of the actual timing of our Lord's return is in variance with theirs, well, they're willing to break fellowship and demonize their opponents. That's looking for a demon under every rock and cranny. But on the other hand, not all disagreements are benign. So we need to listen to 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, which says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. In the case of 1 Timothy, Paul has in mind those who teach asceticism as a pathway to true spirituality. But John says the same thing about those who teach Greek dualism. 2 John 7 says, For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So it seems clear to me then that not all disagreements by Christians are of the same gravity, nor does all false teaching arise from the same source. Some are in error simply because they're confused, others because they're filled with pride, and so forth. But wherever error leads someone to distort the truth about the genuine identity of Jesus and leads others to discount the gospel because of it and the way of salvation, well, you can bet that's demonic. That's because it's a doctrine that leads people to respond aggressively against the real Jesus. And if we use our previous measurement, that is, hatred of Christ and rising out of profound evil, well, we can see that's the case. Now, I know of one liberal teacher who has actually made a living out of claiming that the New Testament contains at least 400,000 manuscript variants. Well, then he says, given all these variants, it's virtually impossible for us to believe that we can even come close to discovering what the original writers said. Furthermore, clearly, he says, the early Christians had no interest at all in preserving the original teachings of Jesus, and so why should we? Now, there are two ways to deal with this. I mean, one way is to deal with the actual teachings of this professor. Many good and biblical scholars have answered these objections masterfully. That is, when calm scholarship discusses the exaggerated claims of this professor, they find his work, to put it mildly, grossly misleading. What he calls a manuscript variance, when you think about it, well, it's not what you think of when you think of a variance. See, the language that he uses is deliberately misleading. But there's still the question of motivation. I mean, what motivates this man? Now, I make no judgment, but I do note that he comes from a very fundamentalist upbringing, and he is reacting strongly to it. I mean, how much of his work is premised on his reaction, even hatred of something? I don't know. But wherever we see hatred, we leave open the possibility of demonic activity even hatred of the real historical Jesus. So keeping that in mind, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10. 
It's a very famous passage regarding spiritual gifts. And according to verse 10, one of those gifts is the ability to distinguish between spirits. So it seems, therefore, that God grants some of his servants the ability to recognize the presence of evil when it comes from the dark world. I'm not sure I understand the gift entirely. I mean, it might be that in some cases, there is indeed an objective way to identify demonic activity. You know, perhaps, for instance, you know, there are five tests or something like that that indicate the presence of the demonic. But sometimes, at least that's how I understand this gift, sometimes people have a subjective sense of the presence of the demonic. Think of it this way. Have you ever been with somebody and after a while you just sensed they must be a Christian? I remember years ago as a young man, I was working a summer job. I was driving a truck. I was learning from a seasoned veteran and we'd been on the job for the better part of the day. And at one point in time, he pulled the truck over. He looked directly at me and he said, you're a follower of Jesus. And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, I knew it. And he stuck out his hand and said, welcome, brother. I knew you were a believer. Now, think of it the other way around. There are some of God's people who sense the spirit of darkness, and they immediately notice it. In such a case, believers need to take authority over the forces of wickedness. We need to claim the authority of Christ and drive the evil ones from our midst, and in so doing, we set people free. But in any case, what is required is not an extremist approach. What is required is genuine discernment so that we don't discount the demonic, neither do we assume it. Rather, we carefully discern. Let us then, by the grace of Jesus, be a discerning people. John, I'm sort of struggling with how to ask this question because uh, recently someone I know was confronted with a conversation and and she's very ill or has had chronic illness. And the gentleman said to her, well, you know, it's as a result of self-loathing. How should she take that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. People say those kind of things and they make blanket statements. So every illness that you've ever had is self-loathing. Self-loathing is what causes all illness. No different than saying every illness that you ever had is caused by demons. And in some way, because you failed to deal with a demon present, that's how come you got sick. So we always make these grand sweeping statements. So can psychological conditions uh, contribute to illness? Of course they can. Uh, You know, this is but we have to be careful. This is why we need to discern rather than to jump to these blanket statements, which I don't think are helpful even in the slightest. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our last message in our series, The Invisible War, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hey, it's Phil Calloway. I want to tell you about my newest book with Laugh Again, 12 Days of Christmas Stories. In it, I share 12 of my favorite Christmas stories to help you laugh and think about Christmas. This beautiful coffee table book includes Bible readings from the real Christmas story. It's perfect for reflection, reading around the dinner table, or sharing with kids of all ages at bedtime. And there are bonus features too. Four of my favorite stories have special QR codes that lead you to four videos where I read the story for you. 12 Days of Christmas Stories is filled with colorful illustrations, perfect for a new Christmas tradition. 
Finally, this book is our gift to you. Just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca and request your free copy. Did I say free? I did. Merry Christmas.